Well, our lesson this evening is found in Genesis chapter 45. We'll read the entire chapter as we have been doing for the last several chapters so that we get the full context here. I'll be making a few comments as we go. But let's begin reading in Genesis chapter 45, beginning at verse 1. Genesis 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all of those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. This was quite an emotional breakdown for Joseph. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. They were absolutely speechless. They were shocked. They were trying to piece everything together, and not only of the last 20-some years, but also of the last several months and days where all of this that they've been experiencing through this one that they thought was just an Egyptian that was out to enslave them, and they, they're, they're not grasping everything just yet. They were speechless. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph's words make it clear that everything he's done with his brothers during this process of revealing himself was not done out of revenge. It was not done as any kind of payback or bitterness or hatred because he clearly understood the big picture. Even before he revealed himself, he understood that God was in all that happened, including all of the injustices and the evil and the sin that his brothers had committed. He understood that his life was in God's hands, not his brother's hands, not his evil brother's hands that hated him, but was in God's hands and that God was over all. And so he clearly, again, the criticism that some have of how Joseph treated his brothers here, um, it, it's, it's unwarranted. He clearly wanted to reveal himself. His emotions here uh, reveal how intensely he loved his brothers even after they had treated him so wrongly. His example is, it's, it's rather challenging, I would say, it is for me at least, to think that one could have this attitude towards those who had treated him so wrongly and unjustly. Joseph knew that what he was doing in this process of revealing himself was for his brother's benefit. It wasn't for his entertainment, it wasn't for Joseph's entertainment. It was in order to bring his brothers to a place where they finally came to a full repentance, an acknowledgement that what they had done was wrong. And now we see them coming to that full repentance where they could be restored and that the blessing that God had promised through Joseph, that they personally, that his brothers and their family could now personally benefit from all of the provisions of God's grace. But they had to come to this place before they could personally benefit from those blessings. Verse 6, 
For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all of the land of Egypt. What, a, what an understanding. God sent me here. Yes, the instruments were evil men with their evil intentions. They had no understanding of the purpose and the plan of God. They had no understanding that they were being used by God. They just did what was in their heart. And God held them accountable for that. They needed to repent of that. But Joseph, from his understanding, he knew that God was in control of his life. And this is something that is so important for us to remember in the trials that we go through, especially those difficult uh, conflicts with individuals, relations, family, to remember that we are never victims of circumstance or of someone else's treatment of us when we are trusting the Lord. He is in charge of directing, even when sometimes that direction and that, that way that he leads us is in way of difficulties and suffering. Verse 9, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near to me. You and your children and your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. For there is still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin, see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen. And you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your animals and depart, go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Pharaoh was very grateful for Joseph's wisdom and administration basically saving his empire during these years of famine. And now you are commanded, do this, take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives, bring your father and come. And do not be concerned about your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Don't have to bring all your stuff. I'll give you new stuff. Then the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh. And he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. Still testing the, the brothers. Are you going to be jealous? And he sent to his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, 
and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, See that you do not become troubled along the way. Then they went out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still, because he did not believe them. News too good to believe. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. And then Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. On a prophetic level, we understand that God will move heaven and earth to fulfill his word. God had made promises to Abraham. Those promises would be null and void if Jacob and his family perished in a famine. And so in order to preserve Jacob, he ordered the steps of each individual, of nations, in order to fulfill his word. This is our father. This is the one who's promised to care for us no matter what. This is the one who's made us promises concerning eternity. We can trust him. We need to rest in those promises for this life and for eternity, even when it seems like everything is against us. How many situations did Joseph face that seemed to completely remove every possibility that God's promise would be fulfilled to him? And yet God orchestrated his providence, his sovereignty. He is over all. This is why we can trust him and his word for our own lives. God rules and he overrules. In our life, we need to let him rule. And Joseph did in his individual life, his faith. He let God rule in his life. In every circumstance, he continued to be a witness to Jehovah. Everyone he came in contact with knew who Jehovah was, who his God was. And so Joseph let God rule in his life. Joseph's brothers, God had to overrule them, and he did. And so, once again, these, these principles, we can read these stories, and they can just be Sunday school stories for us. But we need to understand that this is our God. This is the one that we serve. We can rest in him. No one and nothing can overthrow his promises to us. Absolutely nothing. When we call him almighty, it's not just a title. It means there is no one that is mightier than he is. Those that try to oppose God's plan often become the very instruments to fulfill his plan. How many times have we seen that throughout history? The enemies of God have their plans and purposes and they begin to execute them and they seem to have, have uh, success in what they want to do. And when it's all said and done, they are unwitting instruments in the hands of God to fulfill the plans and purpose of God. Now, on a personal level, and on a, a level that, that we need to learn to conduct ourselves in Joseph's treatment of his brothers, in dealing with their sin, dealing with sin in the family, and in this case, in this age, it's the family of God among Christians, we have a wonderful example of how we are to deal with, with sin in the midst of God's people. 
It is not something that we are to deal with according to our emotions. Now, it doesn't mean that our emotions aren't affected. Joseph was extremely emotional. His weeping was so loud that after the doors were closed, the Egyptian servants outside heard him. And this is probably why Pharaoh ended up knowing about it is because word spread pretty quickly. Joseph was very emotional. Nothing wrong with that. But he didn't deal with the sins of his brothers according to his emotions. If he had, he would have just immediately revealed himself. But he restrained himself. I think we read that a couple of times in the the last several chapters, that Joseph restrained himself. He didn't do what he felt like doing in the moment. He did what was right for his brothers. We need to learn to do the same thing in dealing with sin among the family of God. If we deal with it according to our emotions, it's going to lead to one or two extremes. One extreme, emotional extreme, when someone sins in our midst, especially if it's against us, it can lead to anger and bitterness and a refusal to accept them or to treat them as a brother or sister in Christ because our anger will not permit it. Joseph, from the human standpoint, had every right to be bitter against his brothers. He was in a place of power and authority. He could have enslaved them with just one wave of his hand if he acted in anger and bitterness, but he didn't. But then there's the other extreme of dealing with sin according to our emotions, and that's just to ignore sin, to pretend like it didn't happen, especially if it's someone we really like, especially if it's one of our family members. We're going to make excuses because we love them. We have that human attachment for them. But neither one of those are going to accomplish the will of God. And it's not in the best interest of those that have fallen for us to deal with them and eat with either extreme, either with hatred or with just sticking our head in the sand like nothing ever happened. We must deal with sin according to God's instruction in his word. And this is not a popular subject, especially among those of us that consider ourselves grace saints. Many consider grace The teaching of grace as a tolerance for sin. That God doesn't even see our sin when we're saved by grace. But the Bible doesn't teach that. That's not the grace of God that the Apostle Paul teaches us. The Apostle Paul has given us some very clear instructions in the New Testament that are actually illustrated for us in Joseph's experience and his treatment of his brothers. Repentance, forgiveness, and restoration is a process that needs to be followed. There can't be shortcuts. Joseph didn't shortcut the process here. For some, that process seems unnecessary. For some, it even seems to be cruel and unforgiving, ungracious, judgmental. But the the fact is, the Bible gives us a process that leads to genuine, full restoration of those that have fallen in sin. And this process applies to us when we fall in sin, and it applies to us dealing with others that have fallen short of God's will. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 3. These instructions, when followed, are a true manifestation of love. Again, some see them as cruel. 
Some see them as judgmental. But this is, if you truly love someone that is fallen, you will neither deal with them in hatred or excuse what they're doing, but rather you will follow these clear instructions. 1 Corinthians 5 and verses 1 to 3. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, not even the unbeliever do. They they disapprove of what this Christian in Corinth was doing, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up. (laughs) The other believers, the family of God was puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. There are those that say the Bible teaches us that the grace of God teaches us we shall not judge one another. Well, you, you take that true statement out of context and you fall short of understanding what God's will is for you. We are to judge. There's a time and a place for judging. There is righteous judgment, and then there is carnal judgment. But here we see Paul judging the one that had sinned and had yet to repent. Judging sin simply means that we call it what God calls it. Sexual immorality in this case. Sin. Contrary to God's instruction for how his people are to conduct themselves. Sin is disobedience. It's rebellion against the revealed will of God, and we need to call it what it is. Sin has to be acknowledged for what it is. Joseph's brothers finally came to a place where they said, this sin that we committed, God's judging us for it. They, They recognized what they did to Joseph was sin. To judge sin is to refuse to condone it or to facilitate it. But when God's people ignore it or say it doesn't matter or God doesn't see We're only facilitating sin, giving occasion for sin, and that is self-destructive. It is harmful to the individual, it's harmful to the congregation, and so it needs to be acknowledged and called what it is. There needs to be a call to turn from that sin, to leave it, and to return to obedience. Sin is disobedience, and so to... Walk in the will of God is to walk in obedience to God's will for your life. Too many believe that forgiveness is just sticking your head in the sand and ignoring the presence of sin. That never works. It only leads to more contamination. Others see it and say, well, there seems to be no consequences for sin, so I'll have the best of both worlds. I'll shout hallelujah in the meeting and then I can leave and do what I want in the world have the best of both worlds. That whole mentality fails to understand the corruption of sin. Yes, there's a moment of pleasure, a season of pleasure, but it always leads in loss and destruction. Galatians 6.1, there is a path to restoration. This is where the grace of God comes into play. When you judge sin, it's a part of God's grace because judging sin gives the opportunity for repentance and full restoration to a place of usefulness and to a place of blessing. God was going to provide for Joseph's brothers, the ones that sold him into Egypt. God says, now I'm going to provide everything you need. Galatians 6, 1, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, 
You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. May it never be an arrogance that we deal with a fallen brother or sister. Judging sin by those who are truly spiritual will lead to an attitude of humility, gentleness, in order to restore those that have fallen. The word restore in Galatians here, it literally means to restore to a state of usefulness. So restoring a brother that has fallen or a sister that has fallen into sin is not saying it doesn't matter, just come and enjoy all of the blessings of full fellowship with with God's people. No, because the only time we can be useful to God is when we walk in the will of God. And so to restore one to usefulness is to restore them to a place of obedience to the will of God. And what about those who refuse? Second Thessalonians 3. Because we know that there are Christians who sin and it doesn't matter and that they don't care and I live under grace and so it doesn't matter. I'm going to continue to do what I want to do even though it's contrary to God's instruction for us. Second Thessalonians 3. And verses 13 to 15. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with them that he may be ashamed. Well, that sounds cruel. That sounds hateful. Verse 15. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. This is the divine balance of grace in dealing with sin. They're still your brother and sister in Christ. That doesn't change. Nothing can annul your relationship. But your fellowship? Yes. It's the same with God. Nothing, no sin, can break our relationship with our Heavenly Father. It's eternal. But sin does have an impact on our fellowship with God, our walk with Him. And those who refuse to repent, just like Joseph. You remember the first thing that Joseph did when his brothers came? He let them sit in prison for a while. They were separated from him and everybody else. It gave them time to think. And what, what were some of their thoughts sitting in prison? God's getting us. He, he's working on us because of what we did to Joseph. And there are times when those who refuse to, to repent of their sin, there needs to be a separation that they have the opportunity to reflect. Is the sin that I'm doing, is it more beneficial and better than the blessings and the protection and the, the comfort that I have in enjoying fellowship with God's people and with God himself? And hopefully after such a, a treatment, as was the case with the, the individual in Corinth, he did come to a place of repentance, even after that great sin. He came to a place of repentance where Paul says, accept him. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 11. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean, as some of them probably thought, well, he's talking about you know, not, not with the world. No, I did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the extortioners or idolaters. Notice how the list includes other sins. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother 
who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. This is God's instruction for Christians that refuse to repent of their sin, other Christians that desire to honor the Lord and who love that one that has fallen must come to a place of separation. We can't have that close walk with them because their sin contaminates them and all of those around them. How can we know if someone truly repents? There are signs. We've all known Christians that said, oh, I'm sorry. And then they go right back to what they were doing or they return. It's important to remember that true repentance involves humility. They realize they don't deserve anything. Over the years, I've dealt with so many Christians that have sinned and then they say that they've repented and then they demand. They come and demand a place in the assembly or they demand this or they demand that and people need to treat me like this and do this and not do that. They come demanding things. That's not a sign of repentance. That's arrogance. Repentance involves humility and it involves acknowledging the specific sin, what they what they did. Repent. And then it also involves a forsaking of that sin. In all of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, when God calls his people to repentance, these three elements are always demanded. Example, Second Chronicles of the Old Testament, chapter 7 and verse 14. Second Chronicles, chapter 7 and verse 14. Notice these three elements that are demanded by God of his people that have fallen short of doing his will. And this includes for us, when we have fallen short, we need to apply these three principles. If my people who are called by my name will do what? Humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That doesn't say that God will then start to love them. His love is unfailing. He loves even the the most carnal of his children. But here we're talking about forgiveness of sin for restoration. James 4, let's go to the New Testament. James 4, verses 8 to 10. Notice what God calls us to. James 4, 8 to 10. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. The opposite of being puffed up. The opposite of arrogance. It's humility. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. These things are not cruel. It's not carnal judgment when we apply these things. It's the grace of God that will take us from where we've fallen and exalt us to a place of close fellowship with himself. That's the magnitude of the grace of God. It's infinite. When these elements of true repentance are manifested, then there's full restoration. Restoration of fellowship among God's people, and more importantly with God the Father and with the Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph's wise dealing with his brothers led to genuine restoration for them, where they could enjoy the benefits of God's grace that provided 
everything they needed during that that time of famine. May we learn the lessons, not only the the ones of great victory and, and the ones of rejoicing, but also in an understanding how we need to apply every aspect of God's instruction for our life in our personal life and in dealing with the lives of others, especially of the family of God. So I think we'll close there this evening.